From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm really happy to welcome to the program today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Kathleen Hamm, and she is with me today to discuss what happens when something gets stuck and causes a foreign body obstruction in our pets. This happens probably all the time to cats and dogs, and we're going to learn more about it when Animal Airwaves comes back from this news from NPR. From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm so happy you're tuned in here on this Friday. What is today? The 10th of June. So glad that you could join us today. And so happy to welcome to the program today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Kathleen Hamm. And we're going to be talking today about foreign body ingestion and how to minimize risk. So think about this as just the kind of prototypical cat gets into some string or dog, you know, chews on a shoe or something like that and swallows it and the problems that can ensue then. So I want to welcome to the program, Dr. Ham. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Dana. I'm very happy to be here. With foreign body ingestion, I suspect that there are probably some some very common ones that you see. Can we talk about what some of the common ones are for both cats and dogs? Yeah. Dogs tend to go for things that are cloth. So they'll chew their toys and sometimes they'll swallow um, one of their cloth toys or even the squeaker from a toy. They tend to chew a lot of towels and socks, um, sometimes underwear, um, but usually things that are laying around that maybe have a smell associated with them, and then they'll chew on that and, and swallow it for some reason. Cats, on the other hand, tend to chew on things that are more linear, like string, as you mentioned, but sometimes they'll chew on other things that are um, a little bit harder, small plastic things, or um, even coins sometimes. Really? Even coins? Okay. And, and does there need to be any sort of smell associated with what a cat will chew on? It doesn't seem like that's the case yeah. with kitties for whatever reason. I mean, ball of yarn is sort of a classic kind of cat thing. If you look at any illustration in a book, you know, before like, I don't know, the 1980s or something, the, the picture of the cat is going to have the cat pawing at a ball of yarn. That's just how it has to be. And these are really not maybe the best toys for cats, though. I guess when they're kittens, maybe it helps teach them to hunt or, or whatever. I mean, they're engaging with their world in ways that will teach them how to be adult cats. And yet, the idea that they might actually ingest that can present big problems. We're going to talk about sort of why those become big problems. But I have known, of course, many people with cats and many people with dogs and just anecdotally, I would say that I've seen more trouble with dogs, you know, running into this problem because it's everything from shoes to, as you say, underwear to like 
even things in the garbage that might, you know, smell enticing to a dog. Do you see more dogs than cats? Yeah, we do. We, um, I think dogs, it might be behavior related as well. Maybe boredom, you know, they're chewing on things, maybe anxiety. So I'm sure in each case there are factors that may contribute to them chewing on the objects, but we do see dogs more than cats. Okay. And still, you know, this can happen to cats too. Uh, I'll here confess to our listeners that Margaret Oliver, my cat, will... Uh, now she just chews on it. She just chews on stuff, and she didn't used to do this. This wasn't a behavior that she had before. And I've never had a cat who really uh, engaged in this kind of activity until now. Uh, but Margaret Oliver will eat plastic things like toys, or she will chew on cords. And aside from you know my fear that she's gonna get shocked, uh, and I hope it won't be too serious when she does. So far, she's not chewing on you know, like 120 volt, like electrical cords. It's more like phone chargers and whatnot, which carry pretty low voltage, but still I don't want her to do that. And and I'm kind of at a loss to sort of figure out how to make this less enticing, especially when the behavior seems to me so unreasonable, right? Like, yeah. so I want to, uh, as the show goes on, talk about some strategies that listeners can maybe employ to help reduce this kind of behavior and, and risk to the pets. But as we talk about these different types of things that are ingested, uh, I know based on previous pro episodes of this program that a cat that might ingest some string or some yarn, I mean, that's really problematic because it can really tie up the digestive system. Can you talk some, about some of like phys physically what's happening inside the animal? Yeah, when uh, when when an animal ingests something that is either too big to move through or gets anchored somewhere. So in kitty cats, if they eat the yarn, sometimes it'll actually wrap around the base of their tongue, and then it makes its way down the in the stomach and the intestines. The intestines will become obstructed. So if you think about like a garden hose and it has to have water running through it and then you step on it and one side gets really big and blows up that's essentially kind of what happens and so the intestines themselves become very affected because they need things to move through and if it gets stuck for too long it may actually require that we have to cut a portion of the intestines out which can be a very complicated surgery and so um, if a pet has clinical signs that fit with an obstruction, we want you to take your pet to the vet right away to get x-rays to see if there is an obstruction. Okay, so what are some of those physical signs? Oftentimes what you're going to see is vomiting. They will start to vomit. Sometimes they'll vomit food, but sometimes it will just be bile or water. And then oftentimes they lose their appetite. They don't want to eat anymore because their stomach hurts. Sometimes you may even notice that their stomach hurts when you go to pet them and they kind of guard or pull away when you're going to touch their stomach as well. Those are the the big ones that you notice. And as as that gets worse, they may start to feel dehydrated and more lethargic, dumpy, laying around. So if you are noticing vomiting and then you also know that your animal chews on things and then you've noticed that there's something that's missing, maybe a sock or a dish towel or they had a toy out 
and now that toy was chewed up and part of it is missing, it's a good idea to take them in. Oh, that's a great point. And this has been something that I've thought about myself as my cat has chewed up little bits of plastic, but nothing nothing too big. Um, I, I have thought, okay, well... You know, now I got to really pay attention to what she's doing, which means that, like, I don't know, I, I can't just leave her alone for long stretches now until until I figure out whether or not she's going to find herself experiencing or demonstrating signs that she has an obstruction. Fortunately, that hasn't that hasn't happened yet. But, you know, the idea of a cat ingesting some string or yarn and having that get caught on the tongue, it isn't even just having the yarn or string get loose from the tongue and get swallowed all the way down the esophagus isn't going to make that much of a difference because it still is going to present an obstruction inside that animal's digestive tract. Yeah, there are some things that pass. Um, So, you know, we'll have animals that will come in where, you know, the owner saw them eat something. We take an x-ray. There's, It's not obstructed, and they're able to move it through. And so if the object is small enough or not too long, then they can pass it. But if it's too big um, or a lot of times if it's too long, then it will cause the obstruction. Now, some things are, for lack of a better word, digestible, right? Like, let's say a... a dog has chewed on some sort of some treat of some sort or another like maybe some of these like pig ears or i don't know a, a some bit of a bone or something like that is it possible that that animal might actually be able to digest that and break it down yeah most things that you can buy at the pet store are that are intended for ingestion are things that will be digested even if they swallow it in bigger pieces the stomach is really um, useful because it'll trap it in the stomach while it slowly breaks it down before it sends it through the smaller intestines. And that's a really great function for the body. But um, there are other things that aren't digestible, especially certain types of bones. So, um, you know, like chicken bones can be digestible, but other types of bones may not digest well enough. Can we talk about this a little bit? Because in the wild, animals like cats especially, would eat the entire animal, and sometimes bones and all, uh, and presumably these animals survive. What's what's going on with our pets? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I imagine evolution through time. I think also they usually are going, if, if they were eating something out in the wild, perhaps they were chewing it up to smaller pieces. They're now used to their diets that they get in the house where they're not having to chew things quite as much. So right. um, it could be other weird things that can contribute to that. For <laughs> that sure. is true. Uh, <laughs> most of our pets don't have to eat anything that isn't like mushy or very small <laughs> like kibble. Um, most of our pets aren't like biting off big hunks of meat somehow. Uh, so can we talk a little bit about what happens in the stomach that helps break down some things? Yeah, the stomach is a very muscular organ and it will have these big contractions and uh, there is the exit point of the stomach, which is called the pylorus, and it's a very small opening. So it will stay closed until the stomach has grinded it down to smaller particles that fit through the pylorus, which is a really handy tool for our, for our body. Are there any substances in the stomach that help facilitate this like breaking down? Yeah, our stomach also has a lot of acid 
acid and that helps with the digestion process as well. So you have the mechanical and the kind of chemical effects happening simultaneously. And that acid doesn't irritate the everything that's beyond the, what did you call it, the pylorum? Yeah. Nope. It primarily stays in there. And then the body actually has um, other parts that will help uh, neutralize that. So you have bile that comes in and pancreatic juices and all these other neat parts of yeah. physiology. Yeah, it's magic. Okay. Yeah. So uh, with with animals that might ingest something that is, you know, somewhat digestible, uh, there are many things that would not be digestible. I mean, even some of these, like, sometimes dogs play with these uh, little rope toys, mm-hmm. right? And I imagine that some of these rope toys are made out of some kind of synthetic fiber, right, which yep. is not going to be readily digested. I mean, that's just going to, that ideally is just going to go all the way through if it is ingested, but it might cause an obstruction. Yeah, rope toys actually are very commonly found with obstructions um, other things that are not digestible, some plant material, so corn on the cob, is something that we um, unfortunately see obstruct, causing obstructions very frequently. So yeah. never feed your dog a ear of corn on the cob. Okay, so this this is where we run into issues with dogs, where anything that smells good or looks good to a dog, they're they're pretty eager to try whatever, and I can imagine that. At barbecues across America this summer, a dog is going to, like, maybe sneak his way over to a table. He's going to, like, look up there and see these buttery, you know, uh, ears of corn, like, just on a tray. And he's going to be like, oh, I can get this. And then it tastes delicious, right? So, of course, he's going to try it. Uh, But you're saying that this is going to maybe cause trouble because it's probably going to hastily bite off chunks of this corn on the cob and that cob itself probably not readily digestible correct yeah and then it will make its way into the intestine and cause a blockage and then um and those and you know the um, most intestines aren't going to be able to accommodate the size of a corn on the cob yeah okay um and with uh, other kinds of toys that dogs might have, including the rubbery sort of toys that have squeakers in them, um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, sometimes these are associated with anxiety or other kinds of stress that our pets feel. And look, a, a lot of pets right now, and this is a phenomenon that you, you may have observed, are for the first time in a couple years spending significant amount of times away from the people who were for some time, in many cases, spending a great deal of their time with these animals. And I bet there's a lot of dogs right now who are experiencing separation anxiety. Are are the case numbers sort of bearing this out that dogs are ingesting more than they may have in the past? It's an interesting thought. I don't know if anyone's actually done a study to look at the correlation, but certainly we are seeing that there are a lot more dogs that were, you know, adopted um, during COVID times when people were home more often. And and so it will be interesting to see if there are any kind of correlations or connections that can be made between that. Um, But I think, you know, if you have an animal and you are starting to see separation anxiety, definitely work with your veterinarian. If you know your animal does chew toys, 
to an extreme whenever you're not home, either put the toys up or try to use, you know, crating or other means of keeping them confined away from those so they're not able to chew them when you're not there. Right. Okay. That's really good advice uh, because, you know, I've certainly been to households where the dog seems to have free access to squeaky toys and all that. And, you know, it could be that these particular dogs have just never demonstrated any sort of eagerness to chew things up and and everything was okay. Uh, but especially if you've got a new pet, you may not know right now how your pet is going to behave around these kinds of toys and other things. Your pet may be real sneaky and may just try to go for everything. Uh, with those kinds of squeaky toys, it's not hard to imagine that, I mean, hard, nothing in there could be digestible. It's just all, you know, plastic and rubber and who knows what. Yeah, absolutely. I think whenever you introduce a new toy, it's always good to do that under supervision. Watch to see how your pet handles that toy. And then again, you know, pick that toy up. Now, there are some um, chew toys that are meant to be indestructible where, um, and they're especially helpful for animals that may have anxiety where you can put treats into them so that the animal can occupy their time by chewing at it but the 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 toy itself is is meant to be indestructible really how do they pull that off i don't know (laughs) (laughs) but but they are really nice and they i think they're at most pet stores and again most um of your primary care veterinarians and and Uh, would know or have recommendations. And then again, there are veterinarians that are behavior specialists that are really helpful too if you do have a dog that's doing something to the extreme. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a really great point. And this is where I think we're going to take our first break. But I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT-FM. I'm Dana Hill, and my guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Kathleen Hamm. And we'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Kathleen Hamm, and we're talking about foreign body ingestion and how to minimize risk. Now, I'll tell another story here, and and I don't know if listeners have heard this before, whether I've told this, because everyone who listens to the show uh, will probably think of me as sort of a, a cat person, and that's very much true, but... There was a time when I was a, a young, young fellow, who and I, I, I wanted a dog, like like any boy does, and just it came to pass that, and this was a time, this was a time back when there were just loose dogs running around. I don't know if you remember this, but it just used to be that just people just like let dogs go when they didn't want them, or even when they did want them, they just like open the door and your dog goes wherever. Uh, and so uh, it came to pass that this dog uh, uh, wandered my way, and I, I guess you know looked around to see if there was any anybody who this dog belonged to, and there was no collar, there was no any way to know, and so. Um, after a while of just kind of like holding it around, um, and waiting to see if anybody wanted it, I just said, okay, well, I guess I'm going to keep this dog. And my parents allowed me to do this. And she was, uh, I gather now I would recognize uh, this as being 
an anxious kind of dog. She was um she was like a pointer, and so she did all that kind of pointer stuff, which was pretty was pretty neat. But when I would be at school for however many hours a day, she was contained in my bedroom, which was you know like any kid's room, not very big, and I had. All the kinds of things that a kid would have in his room, uh, toys and other things. And one by one, she consumed all of these objects. I remember I had a nice pair of headphones. She just ate ate them. Uh, and then the real shocker to me was one day, and this is this is all my fault, mind you. I'm not I'm not laying the blame on anybody but me. Uh, I had had a glass of chocolate milk in the morning and like any irresponsible kid I did not put my dish away and I think I just left it on the desk or something in my room off to school I go and I come home and all that's left of this glass of chocolate milk is the heavy glass base the rest of the glass itself and all the like chocolate milk residue that was on the bottom is gone like no sign of any of it and so all this glass and chocolate milk. I mean, and I doubt Hershey's chocolate milk. Hershey's chocolate syrup is the, the most dangerous chocolate for a dog. But still, uh, I was more concerned about the, the shards of glass that were now inside this pet. And, you know, so, you know, I get to talk to a veterinarian. And the veterinarian like, well, just, you know, watch. Watch and see, you know, how. And, and nothing, nothing ever happened. Nothing bad ever happened. I, I don't know how that worked. Um, but somehow... That wasn't that wasn't the demise of this dog. It's little things like that, that absent-mindedness that can cause trouble. I guess that's the that's the point of my story there is that absent-mindedness in on my part made made a situation where my dog was just gonna do what she was gonna do. And I wasn't there to stop it. Yeah, I think you could go to any group of people, you know, um, you could be at a party or just in your class or whatever, and you could ask anyone, has your dog ever eaten something? And almost everyone's got a story about something that their dog ate or a story that they know of something else. And I think it's stories like that that can sometimes be really funny and a good conversation starter, but sometimes it might trick people into thinking that some of that stuff is fairly innocent too because you know you've you've had that experience where my dog ate glass and was totally fine it doesn't mean that another dog could eat glass and have the same experience you know oh sure i mean and i even as a however old i was at the time i thought of all the ramifications of this dog eating glass right and they weren't too hard to imagine and i I don't want people to, to 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 fill their heads right now with with that thought of the consequences. But, like, the whole way down the digestive system, that can be really problematic. How it wasn't, I do not know. Um, so, you know, that story didn't have a, a unhappy ending. And yet, um, many times, as you say, it could have. And, and, you know, another dog, especially, well, I, you know, I don't know. Are these... Are these more problematic for big dogs or smaller dogs? Is there any relationship between the dog's size and the the number of obstructions that you see? Not necessarily. I think it just happens to be what size object they eat. For sure, linear things are always problematic. So the dish towels and the socks um, tend to be more problematic. Even carpet, you'd be surprised at how much 
we see carpet that causes an obstruction too. So um, the linear, the longer things certainly are going to be more worrisome. So if you know that your dog ate something that is linear, long, you know, those are going to be the times where you're going to be a lot more vigilant about seeing how they're doing. And like your veterinarian recommended at the time, it's, you know, you base your assessment on what the clinical signs are that the that the dog or cat are showing so if they ate a sock but they're acting totally normal you're not going to be as concerned but if they skip dinner and you saw and you found a pile of vomit then you're going to definitely be concerned so um you know i don't know if it's always the size of the animal so much as the the object that they're eating and and um that will probably be more predictive of having an issue is vomiting something that is a good sign or a bad sign if if an animal consumes something and then throws up uh, is there hope that they have thrown up whatever it was that was potentially an, an obstruction sometimes sometimes the vomiting the vomiting is part of the body's way of trying to get rid of it so um you know, if there is a pile of vomit, it's good to look, I mean, it's kind of gross, but it's good to look in the vomit to see if what they saw their pet eat is in that vomit. And that can be helpful. And there are some times too, when they eat something, if you go to the vet, it's still in the stomach. Sometimes you can actually induce them to vomit and they'll bring it up. Or if it's just only in the stomach, sometimes we can just go in with a camera and pull it back out without having to do surgery which is a much less invasive way to get it out. Right. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what happens when animals come in to a clinic and they have swallowed something. In the best-case scenario, it is still in the stomach. It's still basically in whatever shape it was when the dog swallowed it. And and you can extract it before it goes further down the digestive system. Um, you mentioned that there are means of pulling things out or you can induce vomiting. Um, you know, what kind of things have you seen pulled out of a, of a dog? <laughs> All kinds of things. Um, it's, it, that's another good conversation starter. If you ever get to meet a veterinarian, um, certainly ask to see what they've had, um, scoped out or, or had to take out, but, um, all kinds of things. Just this week we had, um, uh, we had a corn cob. We had a, a towel um, or a rope toy. We couldn't tell what it was necessarily. Um, but other things, um, skewers. A couple oh weeks ago, gosh. we had skewers from shish kebabs. Yeah. Um, uh, we've seen crazy things uh, like rubber duckies, um, a My Little Pony doll once um, we took out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all kinds of weird things weird interesting things that you can find unfortunately that they eat and could you get those out before they move further down and cause problems yeah a lot of times if it has as long as it's in the stomach um then we're going to be able to go down with the camera and take that out at that at you know with that approach and um, but if it started to make its way through that pylorus into the intestine then those guys are going to need surgery Talk about the equipment, this camera, you say. I I imagine it allows you to see inside, so it must have a camera and a light. But what does it have on it that allows you to grab things? It has a working channel that then allows us to put um, a 
fancy little graspers that go through the working channel and go down and then um, grab onto the object and then you just pull it out with the with the grasper. Now, this dog will, in effect, have to kind of like swallow this camera device, right? Is that challenging to get this animal to do that? Because now he's probably panicking because he's at the veterinarian surrounded by strangers who are like holding him down. Is there any sedation that's required? Yeah, it requires full anesthesia. Oh, okay. Full mm-hmm. anesthesia. So so this dog just doesn't know anything. Doesn't that's even going. know it's happening. All right. Well, that's good because yeah. then that sort of minimizes the risk that might come with an animal freaking out while you've got something down its throat. Yep. Um, are these extractions usually pretty successful? Um, it yeah, I, we the um, with any procedure experience plays a big part in your success rate. But uh, at UF, we have very experienced endoscopists that use this technique to take it out, and they are quite successful. I'm always very impressed with what they're able to pull out. That I don't get to do that part um, of the job. I do the surgery part of it. And um, so when they can't get it out is when it comes over to my service. Yeah. Um, with, with extracting things from the stomach, is it the case that anything that this animal can swallow, it can be pulled out? Or is it sometimes challenging to get it back up and out? Yeah, no, that's a really good question too. Um, it can sometimes get get a little tricky when you're trying to maneuver it back out the you know the way it went in. But but generally speaking, it should be able to fit back out that way again. Yeah, um, cats. Is it harder to to do this procedure to try to extract things from the stomach? No, if it's something truly in the stomach that and you can get the scope. You know, and it's it. You can get the scope down there and pull it out that way as well. Um, it's just cats don't eat a lot of things that just get stuck in the stomach. But but if they did, then then it's definitely feasible. Is it easier or harder to work on s- large animals versus small animals? Oh, that's a good question. I you know, the the bigger the object, it might be harder to pull out. You know. Um, versus the smaller animals, at least you have something that's a little bit smaller to grasp onto. But I don't think it makes too much of a difference. And trying to pull out something like, I don't know, string or something that's been bunched up and probably has moved on, um, is that difficult to grasp? I mean, getting, getting a claw to sort of hook onto that, I feel like the claw would just slide right off. Yeah, the string we can't pull out with the scope. It has to be surgical because what happens is the intestines will actually bunch around the string. So just like if you have a hoodie and, you know, have you ever pulled yeah. one side and it causes – that's what happens to the intestines. They become these accordions, and if you pulled, you could actually tear through. Oh, wow. Okay, so that would be a nightmare. Yeah. Um, and uh, just a whole septic problem. So, um, but but with the extractions from the stomach, um, if you can do these without having to do any incisions or anything like that, that's probably like a best case because then, um, you know, there's they just wake up from the anesthesia and everything's fine and they go on their merry way. Um, and... You know, presumably the the vet bill is lower as well, um, and and yet there are, as you say, going to be times that it's too late. Like the animal has begun to exhibit signs that alarm its owner 
or caregiver, and that might be only because it's gone further down the digestive tract, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes they may not show signs until it's already moved past the stomach and it's in the intestines at that point. And then it gets stuck, causes the obstruction, they start to vomit, not eat, and then they're being, you know, taken to their veterinarian to have the x-rays done. Okay, so that was my next question. What sort of diagnostic imaging do you use to discover if there is a foreign object inside these animals? Most commonly x-rays because what will happen on the x-ray is you'll see some intestine that's small and then some that gets really big, just like that hose effect where you, where mm-hmm. you block it up. And um, sometimes you'll see the foreign object as well. So what we're looking for on the x-ray is, you know, signs of the obstruction. Sometimes you might not see it on an x-ray, and an ultrasound is also another diagnostic imaging modality that we use that can be very helpful because you'll be able to see the object or you might see the intestines look more kind of accordion-like, and that gives you the the information that you need to go to surgery. Now, when I think about radiographs or x-rays, and maybe uh, listeners will think the same thing, I, I think of the sort of solid hard objects that would turn I don't know sort of like they would on the x-ray would be bright because you can't see through them right so it it might be you know if an animal swallows something surely something metal or whatever would definitely be visible in an x-ray I would think but what about a piece of string I mean that's hardly going to be visible at all correct yeah It can be very challenging when you try to interpret these x-rays. And so there are times where you are looking for enough evidence to say this is the problem and you may not be able to check all the boxes. So you may say, let's recheck radiographs in another day and see if anything's changed. And it's you know, it, if it's not something that shows up on the x-ray, it can be very challenging to, to get that answer. Radiologists are probably pretty familiar with what a normal animal's insides look like and probably are pretty sharp at like detecting when there is some sort of abnormality, even if it's subtle. Um, that experience is probably helpful when trying to diagnose one of these problems. Absolutely. Experience will play a role and, and specialists that are trained and study these things all day will help as well. So it is great when we have cases come in and we're having a hard time deciding the radiology team will help us differentiate cases that are suspicious to help us put them in the category of this animal needs surgery versus this animal, we can continue to monitor. Now, did you say ultrasound is another tool? Mm-hmm. How is that uh, used in contrast to, say, a radiograph? So ultrasound is used in cases that are where you maybe took the x-ray already and you're just not 100% sure. And so then the ultrasound you can use to look to see if there are other changes that fit with a foreign object. So sometimes the ultrasound can see the foreign object that you couldn't see on the x-ray because it's the same color as all the other stuff because x-ray is just essentially shades of gray. Um, 
And then, um, or sometimes you may see something like the plicated bowel or the bowel that's looking like an accordion that, again, you couldn't tell on the x-ray because they were kind of just bunched together. And I apologize to listeners for asking this question, but are there instances in which via some sort of diagnostic imaging, you can see where the intestines are just backed up and then you can sort of follow that to the source of the blockage? Yeah, it's really neat. Our our radiologists at UF are tremendously impressive at times because they'll tell us exactly where it is and we'll get into surgery and and um, and they're right. And yeah. it's really fun. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit about surgery before our next break. When you believe that you have identified the location of the obstruction, what happens next? Yeah, so if we know that the animal is obstructed and we've found the location, then at that point we'll recommend surgery. And when we do this surgery, it is one where we have to go into the belly and make a bigger incision. There's no smaller incisions or minimally invasive ways to approach it, unfortunately. So we make an incision that essentially goes from just right under the ribs to just past the belly button. Um, and it's right on the middle of their body. Once we've opened them up, we will then be able to feel and look at all of their intestines and their stomach. And once we find that area, we assess to see if everything is still healthy. And if everything is healthy, then we can make a single incision and then pull the object out from this single incision. If, if the tissue isn't healthy, then we have to remove that portion and sew the ends back together. And that's a procedure that's called a resection and anastomosis, which is a big word. Yeah. Um, So that's probably um, not the ideal scenario at all. Um, I imagine that these animals are, again, under general anesthesia. Correct. Right. So, you know, there's there's some precautions taken to make sure that this animal is even a good candidate for a surgery in the first place. Yeah. Then I imagine you've got to shave the area so you can make a clean incision and and see where everything is. And then you're looking inside. And once you're inside, is it pretty obvious where the problem is? Yeah, absolutely. We... um Once we're inside, we are able to, what we say, run the bowel. So we are able to put our hands on the entire intestinal tract. And so you can uh, feel and then get to the area where the problem is. Everything that's in front of where that blockage is, is usually very distended and sometimes bruised. So you can see the path that it's taken to get to where now it's stuck. And then you're, but you are able to see, feel, and touch that area very obviously. Okay. And so now you're, you, you have to make an incision probably inside uh, where this might be part of the intestine. That has got to present a lot of risk in terms of in you know allowing really uh bacteria laden you know portion of its body to like get into what should be an uh, otherwise like safe environment how do you reduce the risk there yeah there are a lot of precautions that we take we want to make sure that we pack off the area very well. We use uh, things like suction 
because we know that there's going to be some liquid and bacteria and things that will come out when we take that out. Uh, we will make sure that we're kind of holding off the ends so that things don't yeah. leak too much. Um, and then after we've made the incision, we, um, we sew it up, we test it to make sure that it feels really good. Um, but then we change our gloves and we use different instruments and we, we take away all the dirty stuff and then bring all clean stuff in. Okay. That's a wonderful precaution. Yeah. Uh, are there sometimes tough judgment calls when you're looking at a portion of the digestive tract and asking yourself, is this tissue okay or is it not okay? Absolutely. It is a very subjective assessment and we'll use multiple criteria to make that assessment. There is actually lots of really interesting research to find better objective ways. And we have actually a couple of our surgeons that are working on some of these projects here at UF, which is great. What would help, what would help you be able to make an objective determination versus a highly subjective one? What we look for is how well the blood is flowing in the tissues. And so there's different methodologies to allow us to assess the blood flow in the tissue. So um, right now they're using things like near infrared imaging so yeah. really kind of fancy technologies to see if we can highlight that blood flow going to that tissue reattaching separated segments I mean, there's probably some degree of like i don't know stretchiness that the intestines have you can probably like pull one a little bit this way and the other one a little bit this way um is there any difficulty in getting it to heal properly so that they they stay together because they got to be lined up just right. Yeah, it is very stretchy in there. There are certain parts of the bowel that are a little bit more fixed. So you definitely need to make sure that you know your anatomy and what can move where. But for the most part, the intestines are pretty malleable. And so, um, but you do want to make sure that you are using very, very careful techniques for where you place your sutures and how tight you make them and, and all of these uh technical aspects of it. And then to get even fancier, sometimes we'll use staplers that can help us, you know, speed up the process a little bit as well. Now, I imagine that these sutures are going to be dissolvable in some way, shape or form, because you don't want to have to go back in and like take anything out. Correct. Yep. Okay. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And then the recovery process, does that involve um, a lot of antibiotics just be to make sure that there's no infections? Yeah, that's a really good question. We typically will use antibiotics for about one to two days after surgery, because there is a lot of bacteria that's been um, uh, able to kind of go haywire with the obstructive process. Will the animal following surgery demonstrate a marked improvement over how it was when it was brought in? Yeah, they really do, especially younger animals. They will, five hours after surgery, start eating and feel like a million bucks. Some of our older patients, it may be a little bit slower recovery, but overall the recovery time is about two weeks when we talk to our clients usually within five days their animals are wanting to go back to normal and they have to actually keep them quiet for those two weeks yes yeah. all right well that's really reassuring these animals probably have to wear a cone for a little while to keep 
keep from gnawing at their uh, their sort of uh, surgery area. Well, this is great. Uh, we're going to take another break right now. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more just about preventing this from happening in the first place. This is Animal Airwaves Live. I'm Dana Hill. My guest from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Kathleen Hamm. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live. I'm Dana Hill, and my guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Kathleen Hanneman. We're talking about foreign body ingestion this afternoon. And as we make our way towards the conclusion of the program, Dr. Hamm, I thought we could discuss good strategies for just minimizing the risk because, as they say, you know, an ounce of prevention. So what can people do? I mean, there's, there's, there's obviously going to be times that risk is inherent in the activity you're having a picnic or whatever you know and your pet is going to be there because your pet is a member of your family or what have you well you know you're going to have to keep really close eye but you know how it is like who knows some some little kid may just like hold a corn cob down there under the table and just like give it to your dog <laughs> to your dog um was with with some of the other things though with what are some good strategies for reducing risk in otherwise normal settings yeah, I think some of the big things in homes are to have covered garbage cans. That helps a lot because then the animal's unable to get things, especially at in the in the bathroom toilets as well. Um, you know, bathroom garbages you want to have those covered in kitchens, and that way they're not able to to get access to that. When you're not home, picking up toys, you know, maybe have your your pet toy box have a lid. And, you know, so they don't have anything to chew on when you're not sitting there, you know, when you're not with them. Know your pet's behavior. If you know your pet is a chewer, especially if you did just get that young puppy or kitten and they are chewing on things, um, take precautions, maybe shut all the bedroom doors or use crate training, which can be very beneficial. Um, Make sure you're doing a lot of other positive therapy. So when you're home, you know, um, after they've played with a toy, you pick it up and give them a treat. So there's a reward so they know they don't have to destroy it. And so just, you know, good training and, and, and vigilance around the house. Um, but you're right. There are definitely going to be times where you can't anticipate what's going to happen. So just, you know, always keep an eye on your pet. If your pet is telling you something's wrong by not eating their food or vomiting, then those are good indications that, hey, something's wrong. Let me think back about their access to what they might have gotten into. Maybe it's time to call my veterinarian to see, you know, if I need to to bring bring my pet in. And that is really good advice, especially the calling the veterinarian, because I can certainly understand somebody maybe not even noticing that something is missing or whatever. But if you see your pet behaving strangely in a way that it hasn't behaved before, um, if there's vomiting, if their animal is not eating, if the animal seems to be wincing in pain as you pet it, um, all signs that you should talk to a veterinarian. And I imagine that many veterinarians would be happy to just talk to you on the phone and ask you probably some important questions and maybe you can make a determination. Um, But again, it's much better to catch this early and avoid that surgery that we were talking about in the last segment. Yeah. Um, so 
that's uh, that's some good advice for listeners right now. And uh, if your pet does get into something, if you find, you know, some string or a sock or a towel missing, uh, it's probably time to uh, begin watching your pet very closely and then making that phone call to the veterinarian and maybe making a visit as well. So, Dr. Kathleen Ham, thank you so much for visiting the program today. Thank you, Dana. It's been very fun. <laughs> Kathleen Ham is a veterinarian at the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. I want to thank Sarah Carey as well for her help with the program. And I want to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in and listening to Animal Airwaves Live today. We'll be back next week with another episode. <laughs>